and clean to him as a Jew. The title of our message, Peter, Peter, Unclean Eater. <laughs> Had a wife, one day we'll meet her. Now that's just a bonus. Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you this morning for the blessed opportunity to sit under the teaching of the Word of God, for the aid and the assistance of the Holy Spirit of God, who is our teacher and who opens our hearts to these things, to the facts of them, Lord, but also just to the joy of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, risen from the dead, speaking to our hearts words of love, words of comfort, words of joy, words of encouragement. We ask that this text would become real to us, Lord, and that it would be applicable right where we live, right in our neighborhoods and places of business, Lord, as we desire to touch others around us with this same love that you have touched us with. 
We thank you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone who agreed said, amen. Hebrew National might as well go out of business. Founded in 1905 by a Jewish-Romanian immigrant butcher, they produce kosher foods. In Hebrew, the term kasher means fit. Kasher or kosher foods are those fit for consumption by Jews according to the strict dietary laws of the Old Testament. Hebrew National's famous slogan is, we answer to a higher authority. Well, when you read in verse 15, what God has cleansed, you must not call common, it is a declaration from that same higher authority that there are no longer any dietary laws in effect. All foods are certified kosher by God and therefore fit to consume. Now, you might still want to buy Hebrew National products because of their quality. I don't know what's in half of the hot dogs you get. Uh, at least you, you get a good high-quality dog from Hebrew National that doesn't have dog in it, if you catch my meaning. <laughs> Just know that the dietary laws were never about which foods were healthier for you. They were all about restricting your diet as a Jew to show that you were separate from all the other nations of the earth. You were chosen. Everyone else was common. The foods you refused were merely assigned to the common people, to the Gentiles, that God's favor rested upon you. God declared nothing is common. It goes way beyond food. He meant that there is no longer a spiritual separation between Jews and Gentiles. Anyone can be added to his church regardless of their earthly ethnicity. The importance of Peter's visit to Cornelius cannot be overstated. And that's why so much space is given to it in the book of Acts. All of chapter 10 is devoted to it. The first 18 verses of chapter 11 revisit it. The rest of the book is influenced by it. World history has literally been shaped by it. Without in any way detracting from this monumental event, I also want to highlight its practical day-to-day -day implications for us as believers living under its influence. If we reduce the story to its simplest form and look for the heart of God in it, two things emerge. Number one, God heard a sinner who was seeking him. And number two, God prepared a saint to send for him. I'll therefore organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, if you are a sinner seeking the Lord, he will send someone to you. And number two, if you are a saint sensitive to the Lord, he can send you to everyone. First of all, in verses 1 through 8, if you are a sinner seeking the Lord, he will send someone to you. It's hard for us to understand the earth-shaking events of this visit to Cornelius. We don't really comprehend the Jew-Gentile distinctions uh, and the social stigma attached to them in the first century. This chapter answers a question we never really asked, can Gentiles even be saved? Up until this point, some 10 years into the church age, the believers were mostly born-again Jews or Gentiles who had proselyted or converted to Judaism. There was a general understanding, or confusion at least, left over from Judaism that Gentiles must convert to become Jews before they could be saved. We will see this rise again and again in the book of Acts. 
Jews still had few dealings with Gentiles. They never ate with them or lodged with them. They remained separate from them. And so these events we are reading about are truly monumental in breaking down those centuries-old religious and racial barriers. And so in verse 1, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. Each Roman legion was made up of 10 cohorts of 600 men. Each cohort was made up of six centuries of 100 men. Each century was commanded by a centurion. If you think master sergeant, you'll get the idea. The centurions were the master sergeants of that military. Soldiers and sailors, for that matter, like to promote their own identity within their ranks. The squadrons at Lemoore Naval Air Station all have nicknames and mascots. Cornelius's men were the Italian regiment. In an army that was comprised of men from all over the vast Roman Empire, these guys were proud to be the Italian regiment. They were from Rome, the heart of the Roman Empire. Their mascot, unearthed by archaeologists recently, was a cup of espresso encircled by flames. (laughs) Imagine you're a barbarian coming against the Roman legion. You drink the blood of your dead, and there on the shield of that soldier, this flaming cup of espresso with beautiful crema on top, you're going to just surrender. Anyway, verse 2, actually the aftertaste of it is what caused the problem. But anyway, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Though his heart was seeking God, Cornelius was not saved. We know he was not saved because of what we read in chapter 11. There, as this event is being restated, you read in verse 14, Peter will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And so the angel indicated to Cornelius, Peter's going to come and tell you what you need to know to be saved. Cornelius was an unsaved sinner sincerely seeking after God. Now, there are some theologies you'll encounter that would tell you it is impossible for a sinner to seek after God. Who are you going to believe, theologians or the Holy Spirit's inspired words? I go with the Spirit. Verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, and when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Often I've heard people say that God does not hear the prayers of non-believers. Well, apparently he does hear them because we know that Cornelius was not yet saved, but he heard him. God is interested in the human heart. When he hears a heart seeking after him, he acts to reveal himself more and more to that person. Cornelius is an example of a man who lived up to the knowledge which God gave him. While this knowledge was not sufficient to save him, God ensured that he would be given the additional knowledge of the gospel. God has given everyone on the earth a conscience within them and creation around them. It is not enough to save them. 
But if a sinner will respond to conscience and creation, God will hear from heaven and give them the additional knowledge they need to be saved. Verse 5, now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. It's an obvious observation, but we note that God knew the exact whereabouts of Simon Peter. I bring that out because God knows exactly where you are, and I think that he can just as easily recommend you to people who are seeking him. Peter was a man of like passions as we are. He had unique giftings, but so do you. The idea is that God is looking for someone to send to these seekers, and uh, he has every Christian available to him. You can be available to him, and he can recommend you to seekers. And for many of you, this has happened, and you haven't really put it in this kind of a context, but uh, a lot of you, maybe all of you have had the experience in your Christian life uh, where all of a sudden somebody who you didn't think even knew you were a Christian maybe came up to you and said, hey, what church do you go to? I want to start going to church. Or, or what do you think about this spiritual issue or whatever? And just this morning, one of the brothers was telling me a story about his neighbor who he had no idea was interested in God at all, came up to him and said, hey, what church do you go to? Because I'd like to go. He's inviting himself to church. And so you can be recommended by God to others. And, and we'll see more about that in a minute. But what an encouragement to know that there are sinners seeking the Lord. You don't know who they are because you're not heart-sensitive always the way God is. So we should assume that all sinners are seeking the Lord until told otherwise, and then let the Lord recommend them to you and vice versa. Verse 7, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among them, uh, among those, excuse me, who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Cornelius immediately acted on the information he had received. God would thus draw closer and closer to him, saving him later on in this chapter. God is not willing that any should perish. If a sinner will seek after him, he will see to it he or she receives more and more information. I can't explain how it all works all over the globe in every tribe and tongue. But I see it illustrated clearly and powerfully here in the story of Cornelius. Yes, this is a pivotal moment in spiritual history, in some ways unique, but it also reveals the heart of God towards every seeker. Later in Acts chapter 17, we'll see Paul the Apostle clearly state that God himself is the one who scattered men all over the globe for the express purpose that they would seek after him and find him. And so the very thing that we struggle with and scratch our head over and wonder, how is it that people all over the globe and every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, people who haven't heard the gospel, how are they going to know the name of Jesus Christ, God said, well, I did that so that they would seek after me. Your part in it is to be willing to be sent wherever I want to send you, next door or around the world. And, and sometimes I think our focus gets so large, we start thinking, you know, how can God solve this problem? Well, he can't because we can't figure out how he can do it. And so our, we begin to build our understanding and theology of God 
as a God that has boundaries and limitations, as a God that we want to understand within a certain small parameter. And the next thing you know, we've, we're portraying God as a God who, who really isn't seeking sinners and who's, who, sinners can't seek him because they're dead in their trespasses and sins. And what can a dead man do? Well, apparently a dead man can do a lot, spiritually speaking, because Cornelius was dead in trespasses and sins. He was not a saved man. And yet God, he must have heart sensors in heaven, you know, kind of like, I don't know if they're electronic or what they are, you know, but... Cornelius' name comes up, and, and he begins to give him more information. We might say that God is seeker-sensitive, not in the sense we use the term today or of those who water down the gospel so as to not offend anyone. God seeks them to reveal Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and raised from the dead on their behalf. If your system of theology leads you to suppose or to propose that God cannot be sought after or that he does not hear the sinner, then abandon it and remain biblical. The second point this morning, verses 9 through 23, if you are a saint sensitive to the Lord, he can send you to everyone. We left Peter in Joppa at the end of our last study. The last verse of chapter 9 reads like this, so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. Simon the tanner was a born-again Jew. Still, it was a big deal that Peter stayed with him. Since tanners worked with hides and came into contact with carcasses and blood, they were considered ceremonially unclean by Jewish law. And you would be considered unclean by having fellowship with them and being in close proximity with them. Now, what I mean by unclean is that you would have to go, you, you were excluded from certain rituals and sacrifices because you had come in contact with dead bodies and blood, you had to go through other rituals and waiting periods to get back into a place where you could worship God. And of course, if you're always working with hides and blood, uh, you know, you're, you're going to be excluded from a lot of worship. This was not a preferred profession. This was a, a, a very difficult profession. We read this and we think, well, he lived by the ocean. He had an ocean view home. Well, that's because there was a lot of blood flowing out of that home, and, and uh, you needed to live near a source of water. And also, there would be breezes coming off of the water because it stunk to high heaven at the tanner's house. Uh, so this wasn't like going to Pismo. Uh, you know, this, the, no one wanted to be a tanner, and Jews didn't normally stay with the tanner. And so Peter seems to be opening up. He's no longer bound up by Jewish ritual law, or is he? Because we see in verse 9, the next day as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray. It was about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance. Trance, it's a tough word. It has a lot of occult connotations for us. It's from the Greek word for ecstasy. I thought that would help, but then we think of the drug that everybody takes. So we're not, not getting any help with this word, really. Suffice it to say that Peter was in a heightened spiritual state as he battled hunger and sought to keep his mind fixed upon the Lord. 
Verse 11, he saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. The significance of this, as we'll see in a moment, is the mixture of different types of animals. They were of the kind both permitted and prohibited by the Old Testament dietary laws. Now, in passing, this is a little bit of an aside, but it's, it's in the context. I want to emphasize that there is nothing spiritual about eating certain foods or not eating certain foods. This is a topic that comes up all the time among Christians. There are those who feel like uh, we need to have an Old Testament diet. Whatever God told the Jews to eat in the Old Testament is what we ought to be eating because God obviously knew that that was better for us. Some people go so far as to talk about, you know, that if we eat these other things, they're actually unhealthy for us. Now, it's, it's not like Gentiles were eating pigs that weren't cooked and having trichinosis worms coming out of them all over the place and say, hey, what's that all about? And Jews were being protected from it. Uh, God gave those dietary regulations, and if you read through some of them, the book of Leviticus, they don't seem to make any real sense from a biological or a nutritional standpoint. They were to separate the Jews from the other people. So that if a Jew, you know, went down to Chili's, uh, he wouldn't be able to eat some of the things on the menu because, hey, I'm a Jew and I'm chosen by God. And guess what? You're a Gentile and you're not. And it, it, it marked off the Jewish people from the Gentile people. It had nothing to do with God understanding health uh, laws and dietary regulations. So you are not under any obligation Uh, eat whatever you want. That's what the vision is. Peter sees all kinds of animals. He says, eat anything you want. I was going to bore you with a bunch of weird recipes I came across. Because if you look at a lot of the unclean animals, you don't want to eat anyway. Bats, penguins, camels, hedgehogs. All right, you know. However, I did find a delicious fruit bat soup recipe. Uh, and there are people who, you know, and it's, it's, I got to the point where it says, do not peel or eviscerate the bat. And I thought, okay, that's enough. <laughs> A penguin omelet. You requires two minced penguin wings. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not going to, I barely eat anything outside of the starch group myself, you know. <laughs> anything that's not spaghetti is, is touchy. But when people come along, they say, this is God's diet from the Bible. No, it's not. This is God's diet from the Bible. Get up, kill it, eat it. Whatever you want to eat, eat. Now, you may want to eat healthy. You might, as I said earlier, you might want to choose the Hebrew national because they are making sure it's made from real animals that, you know, that are the kind of animals you want to eat and not spare penguins and hedgehogs and, you know, things that are getting found on the bottom of crates and stuff, you know. Uh, But it has nothing to do with your spirituality. Eat anything you want. Verse 13, and a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. You see this on bumper stickers of hunters' vehicles. This is is the hunter. This is the verse for hunters. If you're a hunter and you want a verse, rise, kill, and eat. This, This is it. 
You get out of California, you see this on every car. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Never in his life had Peter eaten forbidden foods. When served to him, even by God, in a vision, he refused to even handle them. So you get a feel for how deeply entrenched and ingrained these, these restrictions really were. Now, it's been correctly pointed out that it is a total contradiction to say, not so, Lord. You can say, not so, but when you say, Lord, you're using a word of absolute submission. Lord means, I submit to you, I'm your servant, I will do whatever you want. And so, you see how that doesn't really work. Not so, person I submit to, have given my life to, and will do whatever you want. It's, it's just a total contradiction. It's interesting to me, it's, a, you know, just the reality of characters in the Bible. Uh, just Peter, this great apostle, used by God in chapter 9 to heal and to raise the dead. And yet now here he's, and, and having this tremendous vision by which the entire Gentile world is going to be opened up to the gospel. And when God tells him to eat, he says, no, I've never done that and I never will. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. Remember, the Jew thought in terms of chosen versus common. They were chosen. Everyone else was not. Everyone else was common. Their restricted diet, never about health and fitness. It was about separation. It was a way of promoting the understanding they were chosen and the Gentiles were common. Verse 16, this was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven again. Why three times? If you were Peter, it would seem strangely familiar. He had denied the Lord three times once before. Now here he was saying, not so, Lord, three more times. After the resurrection, Jesus met with Peter and three times asked him if he loved him. I think after the third time the sheet went up, these triplets of denial followed by restoration became a romantic reminder to Peter of the Lord's love for him. Though he still had a heart that was confused at times and didn't know what the Lord always wanted him to do, the Lord would work with him gently and patiently and romantically and lovingly and use him. Verse 17, now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. Did God mean for Peter to open a non-kosher deli? I mean, what does this mean? We know what it means because we've read the rest. But if you're Peter, you're waiting for a kosher meal, you're on the rooftop praying, and God says, kill a hedgehog and have at it. Here's some penguin wings that you can make a delicious omelet out of. And, and, and you're saying not so to the Lord all of a sudden. And, and I mean, you're just mind blown. You don't know what this means. The full ramifications of the vision were not yet clear. The knock on the gate below would begin to clear things up. A Roman soldier and two servants were at the gate. In verse 18, they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. And so the Holy Spirit is connecting the vision with the visit of these three men. And by the way, God has this great timing. 
Peter is having the vision, wondering about it just at the exact moment that these guys who on foot had to come to Joppa, it says they inquired where Simon's house was, so they, they had to stop for directions, and, and I mean, all of this at the exact moment, God put all of that together. We accuse God of being late when he is always right on time. And also we see here that God speaks to Peter by the Holy Spirit. God still speaks to you and I. The Spirit indwells us and can impress upon us and influence us God's directives and his direction. Verse 21, then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius, and he said, yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. So it's starting to come together for Peter. The vision obviously had something to do with the visit from these Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles had no social dealings, but here were three Gentiles who would need food and lodging. And if Peter was to go with them the next day, it meant that he, a chosen Jew, would need to enter the house of a common Gentile. And when we get to that part of the story, he'll say at the beginning, he says, I'm doing something now that is unlawful for me to do by coming into your house. And so in verse 23, he invited them in and lodged them. If you're Simon the Tanner, thanks a lot, Peter. I mean, uh, last time I looked my name was on the deed, but uh, okay. Uh, so the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. It was huge that they all sat down together. Any Star Trek fans here? Or anybody willing to admit it? Couple. This would have been like that uncomfortable dinner between the Starfleet officers and the Klingons in the undiscovered country where they sat across from each other and they're trying to talk to the Klingons and they're eating live gack or whatever they called it and they're bugs that are wiggling around. Something like that. I told Gene I shouldn't watch that whole movie just to use that illustration. But anyway, looking ahead, we know that God is going to save Cornelius and his household. When he does, then the vision fully comes together for Peter. It goes far beyond anything he might have thought or imagined. The sheet represented the church. The clean animals were the chosen Jews previously under the law. The unclean animals were the common Gentiles previously excluded by the law. All of them were now equal and chosen. All of them were in the church and would be taken to heaven when Jesus returned. Monumental, pivotal, historic. This little bed and breakfast at Simon Tanner's house and then the visit to Cornelius' house would forever alter the course of the world. It would take what up till that time was a small Jewish sect and it would open it up to the entire Gentile world, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people as God intended it and it would change the course of human history. At its heart is God's heart. We've already seen God is seeker-sensitive those who are seeking him need someone sent to them. That someone cannot be an angel. It must be a man or a woman. I, I like to meditate on that. You see, God has these amazing servants at his disposal, angels, powerful, intelligent, obedient, faithful, 
They only do what God tells them to do. They do it perfectly and completely. Sometimes they add a little bit of their own panache to it. Uh, you know, if you irritate them, they have a little bit of freedom to strike you mute and things like that. But they're just cool beings. I, I mean, you know, if, if you're any other time out in the world or at work, if you're looking for the best person to do a job, you would choose an angel over anybody else. The angel is sent to Cornelius. Cornelius says, what is it? He goes, I'm here to tell you to call for Peter. Peter's going to tell you what you need to hear. Now, the angel knew what Cornelius needed to hear, but it was going to be up to Peter because this is a human transaction. This is, this is a man whose life and heart has been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ, who's been radically transformed, who's been born again, telling another man that he needs to be and can be born again. It's an experience that the angels can, can look at, but they can't understand. But God chooses to use human beings. He chooses to use you and I, and it can be you. It can be you who is sent whether it's next door or around the world, and it will be you if you observe two very simple things. First, we saw both Cornelius and Peter regularly practicing spiritual disciplines. Cornelius gave generously and prayed often. He wasn't a believer, but these are spiritual disciplines that believers are to practice. Peter was in Joppa. He was in a time of prayer. If you'll keep yourself in a place spiritually where God can use you, He will use you. If you're ready as if you are on call, He will call upon you. Practice the spiritual disciplines of giving and fasting and praying that Jesus laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. And then second, stay busy serving God. Peter was in Joppa on a short-term mission. He was thus accessible to the Lord to be sent to Caesarea. God not only knew where he was, he was where he was supposed to be. He was busy serving God. God is looking for servants who are already busy serving him. It is possible to, you know, be giving and fasting and even praying and to be in a state of readiness, but not really be serving the Lord. There are a lot of Christians who don't come to church anymore. They're not connected to any local fellowship. Uh, you know, I, I, maybe they give to missions somewhere, and uh, perhaps they fast. I'm sure they pray. But they're not really serving the Lord. Those are personal spiritual disciplines. God wants them in a place where they can serve the Lord, where they can lay down their life for other people, where they can wash the feet of the saints. And as they take those steps and volunteer for various things and are treated like servants, then God says, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a servant who will serve me. Out in the world, we are always working more to work less. You realize that? Uh, you know, people, they start a business or they establish a career. You hope that you can work the 12, 14, 16-hour days early on in your career to establish yourself so that you can get to the point where you're really not working at all, so that you can retire. And, you know, a lot of people who are getting ready to retire might as well be retired. You know, they're not doing anything. Uh, call comes in. I'm short time. I'm not doing that. Give it to the new guy. You know, and you're just basically taking up space. And if we're not careful, we kind of bring that attitude with us into the household of God. Totally the opposite attitude in the household of God. The people who serve are giving more and more and more serving to do. 
There's always going to be greater and more difficult and also more blessed service for you in the Lord. There's no spiritual retirement from the household of faith. And so if you just are doing the basic disciplines of the Christian life, and if you'll continue serving the Lord, then he will send you to someone. That will be at his discretion. Maybe it's one person every day, one person a month, one person a year. I don't know what God's going to do. I do know that there are hearts, sinners' hearts, that are seeking after the Lord. And we should just assume that every sinner who doesn't know the Lord is seeking after him and that God is sensitive to that and that one day that person that I maybe see at, uh, you know, at the market or I wave to or cuts the grass or whatever they do, that one day they're going to be sent to me or me to them in a transaction like this between Cornelius and Peter, not as earth-shattering from a historic point of view, from the point of view of Western civilization, but certainly radically transforming in the hearts of the people that are involved, transforming lives and hearts, households, and whole families for generations after. Let's pray. Now, Father, we do thank you for these things. We appreciate your love and grace. Uh, we understand that angels could do this better, but they couldn't really reveal the radical transformation that takes place when a heart is given over to you, when that seeking heart finds you and is flooded with love, born again uh, as the Word of God is planted within there. And so I pray, Lord, that we would uh, see ourselves as uh, chosen because nothing is common anymore and that we would look for others, Lord, who you want to bring into the family of God and that you would just do a great and gracious work in us and through us in these last days before the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Some of the guys will be down here to pray with you. Uh, so just as soon as uh, we're done, make your way down here. And, and uh, we love to share with you and pray with you if there's a burden on your heart or a need in your life. I'd ask that you pray for me this week. I've got a couple of opportunities um, that are unusual for me. Tuesday night, I'll be down at Calvary Chapel of the High Desert in Hesperia teaching a men's fellowship there for our friend Dennis Davenport, uh, who's asked me to come down and do that. And then Friday night, I'll be up at uh, Calvary Chapel of the Sierra uh, uh, there in North Fork. I've been telling you a little bit about how Pastor Gillette who's been the pastor there for the past 17 years. He's moving into a different phase of ministry, going to be more of a pastor at large and do some traveling. And uh, Eric Miller is going to be the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel of the Sierra. Eric is a good friend to us here. In fact, uh, Eric came to church here many, many years ago. I humbly remind him that everything he is, he owes to me. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. That's... Actually, I do, but I am just kidding. But uh, anyway, so I'll be up there uh, hanging out with those guys and, and helping them with that transition. And so uh, just keep those things in prayer, all supposing that the Lord doesn't come back, uh, which we're hoping for at any moment. May God bless you and keep you in Jesus' name. Amen.